0: That's networkorg fifteen to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March thirty first. Thank you. Nourish and Flourish is a proud supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Nourish and Flourish, handcrafted, ad free, print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Subscribe at nourishandflourish.site.
1: This week on Meet and Three, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like you're never gonna make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food,
2: you gotta get your hands dirty, and jazz as musicians, it's like, it all goes together very well, you know?
1: Check out Meetin' 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell Here today with Nick Muncy, who's one of those polymaths, a man who wears a lot of hats, a man who used to be in the pastry kitchen, left to pursue a career in magazines, and somehow got lured back into that pastry kitchen. We're going to talk about that boomerang in a second, but it's always fascinating to me uh, when somebody creative Finds cooking eventually, but still fuses it with another creative art. So you grew up in Southern California, uh, the beach, the surf, the swimming, the sun. Um, What were your artistic dreams as a kid?
1: Um, Definitely, uh, I grew up doing a lot of drawing and painting and spent most of my childhood kind of wanting to do that as a career. Um, Yeah, I was kind of like given arts and crafts tools as a kid instead of a lot of toys all the time. So there's a lot of you know, painting a lot of acrylics and a lot of all that kind of stuff going on uh, really early on. And so, yeah, that was kind of where I got started being creative and doing arts. And then, yeah, I kind of picked cooking because it seemed like a more realistic version (laughs) of doing art because I didn't think being a painter would, you know, pay bills.
2: Yeah, they're such similar tactile things, though. Yeah, um, and you know, with art, at least you're making a piece that somehow reflects you at first. Whereas food, it doesn't feel like it's as a motive. It isn't as connected to the person until, I mean, you get to the point which you are in your career.
1: Yeah, and I definitely picked cooking and going to culinary school uh, with a complete, you know, the wrong idea in my head about what cooking was.
2: What was that idea?
1: I thought, you know, watching the Food Network, all that kind of stuff. It was like, all right. I got to be creative. I got to be doing all these dishes all the time. Like the whole repetitiveness didn't really click in me. I didn't realize I was just going to be like grinding all day, every day for years and years. And the creativity part was going to be such a small portion of cooking. But, um, you know, I dove headfirst into it and uh, I really fell in love with it. So it was kind of a, I picked it, but it was also kind of a, mistaken passion.
2: Well, let's talk about Iron Chef Japan because I think it's an interesting microcosm of what you just said. Uh, it's a show that, you know, the chef is given X ingredient and has to make Y amount of dishes doesn't know what that is. So it's purely creative, but without any kind of foundational technique, you can't do a show like that. So watching something like that, did you understand what was going on or was it all about the process and end product?
1: Um, for me, it was just like, yeah, seeing things getting created out of nothing and that kind of process. And, you know, I'm young enough to where actually when I was in culinary school, Top Chef was first coming out. So then there's even more of these kind of cooking shows where it's all this creativity on the whim, all these people creating all these things. And so I kind of thought that's what cooking was, was like, you're just kind of having fun in the kitchen. I had no idea about the kitchen culture, about restaurant hours, about any of the business at all. So um, when you went to the
2: Art Institute to the California, I know you got a degree in culinary arts and restaurant management. Yeah, what yeah. does that latter part mean?
1: So it was kind of the second half of school was uh, there weren't any cooking classes. It was just restaurant management classes. So like, um, o- like figuring out how to open a restaurant, what would be the steps you'd need to do, uh, how to manage people, how to, I don't know, kind of break down the costs. Some, like, kind of legal stuff, like what you're not allowed to say to people, how to treat people, like, in a restaurant setting.
2: You know, it's all important stuff that you expect most restaurateurs or chefs to know and so little do. Yeah. Such an odd, odd misstep by the industry as a whole.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if I really... I think all that stuff, a lot of it was kind of common sense. It's, like, just treating people nice, and the business side was good to learn. I don't know if I needed to spend the extra however many amount of money... And the years to learn it in school. I might have just learned that working in restaurants, how to do food costs and all that. But uh, it was a nice little kind of head start and a little bit of background in that getting started.
2: I think, if anything, what shows is that you understood HR, human resources. Because the reflective nature of Two-Face Magazine, you Magazine, know, part of the reason you're here, um, gives such a wonderful insight in, in, into people's careers in a way that it reflects on uh, logistics and systems, you know, the boring stuff as well as the creativity. Um, You know, what drives them to do X or how they got there uh, before there was ever the Y.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the magazine's kind of, a lot of the interviews and a lot of the conversations I have in the magazine are just me sitting down with chefs and being a chef myself, just kind of having that comfortability together and just chatting about whatever comes up. So a lot of times I'll sit down and I don't even know what we're going to talk about and so sometimes more businessy stuff comes up sometimes it's all creative sometimes it's you know a mix of both it's yeah i never really plan it that much unless they have a pre thought out plan of what they want to share then i'll i'll kind of cater it towards that but
2: i mean i want to jump into the magazine and and i wonder where the concept came from but you you mm-hmm. have a, a wonderful culinary career, which we can't gloss over as well. Yeah. Um, you know, you started in Newport Beach in the Fairmont Hotel, but let's jump right to Healdsburg and Cyrus mm-hmm. and, you know, that Napa, Sonoma Valley, wine country area. First of all, what's the difference between SoCal and NoCal?
1: Uh, the beaches suck in Northern <laughs> California. Um, and back then, I thought that the fine dining scene was better up in Northern California for career-wise. Um, you know, L.A. didn't really interest me back then. So, uh, you know, I was looking at the Michelin Guide and that kind of thing, and all those restaurants were kind of up there in Northern California. So I got I went to Healdsburg. Right when I graduated culinary school, I kind of sent out a mass of emails to every Michelin restaurant I could find an email for on their website, and uh, Cyrus just happened to email me back and brought me on as a prep cook, and, yeah, I kind of took off my fine dining career there.
2: Let's talk about that place and more specifically that pastry kitchen mm-hmm. and why you gravitated
1: from savory into sweet. Yeah, so I was uh, I was working the cold line. Um, I never really made it onto the hotline there. Um, and actually, Garmagé at Cyrus plated up the desserts. So I was plating up the restaurant's desserts and doing pastry, the pastry station, but they had savory cooks plating it and the pastry kitchen would just produce it. And, um, I don't know, I had spent a lot of time in prep because I, you know, wasn't that great in the beginning. And prep was right across from pastry, so I interacted with them a lot. And I really liked uh, the pastry chef at the time, Roy. He was, like, just this mountain of knowledge. I could ask him anything, and he seemed to always have, like, an exact answer. And so I actually moved over to pastry after working the cold line because I thought that... um, eventually it'd be good to know pastry so that I wouldn't have to hire a pastry chef.
2: <laughs> See, that's the economics. That's the restaurant management you didn't yeah. think you needed. But What's Roy's last name? Uh, Bell. So I know he's kind of uh, renowned now for being the panettone guy. Yeah. Did you make panettone back then with him?
1: Yeah, so he, he started making it uh, towards the end of his time there. Um, and yeah, I had never even heard of that bread. Um, and he's one of those chefs that, like, he's amazing at panettone, but he's also amazing at croissants. Like, he's he's got a lot of tricks that he doesn't even, you know, have out there that much right now. But, um, yeah, the whole panettone process was kind of a a fun thing to see. Like, I was definitely too young in my career and too green in pastry to really fully understand what was going on. Like, I saw a lot of the steps, but I didn't really know what, you know, I did. I, well, I wasn't actually learning how to make yeah, it. I just, I would just to kinda... see a
2: bread inverted and hanging upside down must yeah. have been like this mind-blowing experience. Yeah. Then you moved on to Jose Andres's Bazaar in L.A., uh, mm-hmm. back to Saison in San Francisco with chef uh, pastry chef Matt Tinder. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about these restaurants that you chose uh, after you know uh, going to Healdsburg? Uh, what was it about Bazaar? What was it about coming back to San Francisco?
1: I mean, a lot of them
2: were just kind
1: of by chance, um, you know, when I left Cyrus, I ran out of, I didn't really have a next plan and I ran out of money pretty quick. So I moved back home with my parents in Orange County. And one of my good friends from culinary school was a sous chef at the bazaar. So he kind of got me that in there so I could get back working. And then, uh, you know, that job there was a little bit, uh, I found it to be kind of easy, which I didn't like. I I didn't feel like I was being pushed just because it was a hotel and they got so many people and, Um, the pastry department, I just kind of, it was easy to kind of screw around a little bit. So then I, uh, found Saison just on a Craigslist ad, uh, and applied and yeah, I I got the job. That's no small shakes. That, that was
2: kind of at the forefront of what San Francisco cuisine was becoming.
1: Yeah. I had never heard of the restaurant though. And it had one star at the time and it wasn't, you know, what it is now. Like now it's this huge name, but then... You know, I, I think it may have been open for a couple of years, and I don't know. I, I, I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of Matt Tinder. I tried to Google him. There was no pictures. Of, there was, like, one picture of him, and he looked kind of nuts in it. And I was <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I'm just going to take this leap of faith and go. And, um, yeah, it ended up being a great experience, and he became a really uh, my biggest mentor kind of in my career
2: there must have been something about the Bay Area that brought you back, aside from just Craigslist ad. What was it about that region?
1: Well, being in Hillsburg is like, it's a little boring for a young guy. I mean, I had just turned 21 and like being in Wine County is like kind of not the place you want to be. It's just a lot of open space and old people. And it's not like you're not partying or anything. Uh, LA was a lot of partying. And then San Francisco just seemed like this place that I'd visited a couple times while up in Healdsburg and just seemed like an exciting place, so many restaurants and everything. Um, so yeah, I don't know I don't know why I specifically picked that cuz I was also at the same time looking at other cities, but I don't
2: know. I know whenever I go to San Francisco, I'm I'm both blown away and pissed off by the ferry market and all the amazing produce that you guys have all year round. Yeah. I don't just mean seasonally because it is like open season in San Francisco. Uh, does creativity suffer when you have this plethora of ingredients, when you have this bounty? Um, I don't
1: think so. I mean, I think... You know, a lot of the restaurants, I think, do that super hyper seasonal local thing in San Francisco because it does give you some limitations and forces some creativity. Um, I mean, there are limitations where, you know, you get looked at weird if you have tomatoes on and it's not tomato season. So um, I, I I like the, the seasons. I actually find it very chang- challenging, especially in the spring and summer when, like, Blueberries will come and then they'll leave in a month, or like rhubarb will come and it'll be gone in two months. So, as soon as you get this dessert or dish figured out, you have like a couple weeks to run with it, with it being strong, and then some new fruit's coming in that's like banging, and you're like, all right, I gotta, I gotta switch dishes, I gotta do something new, I gotta use this because this one's. You know, this ingredient's starting to get shitty, that kind of thing.
2: So you're at the mercy of yourself, though. Uh, when you started cooking at qual with Daniel Patterson, mm-hmm. um, and you took over the reins of pastry chef eventually, uh, what were the first things you instituted on your own pastry menu?
1: Well, I actually, my, when I first kind of took over, I was just kind of doing my versions of desserts we'd, we'd, we'd done in the past. You know, I, was, I relied a lot on uh, Daniel to kind of guide me through dishes. I would give him, like, a, what I thought was a finished dish, and he would just tear it <laughs> apart. So there was a lot of...
2: Uh, do, do you have mentoring. any of those comments that still ring in your head? I mean, what specifically did he say about a dish of yours?
1: Well, he would never be, like, saying mean things. He would just be like, this doesn't work with this. This is like, you know... He would just... I, I don't I don't remember specifics... I, I got pretty good at uh, avoiding that after a few times of like giving him a final dish and being like, what do you think? And him being like, nope. Yep. And then so. That's why right, you just label him 1A. <laughs> yeah. So then I'd start bringing him components and being like, I'm thinking with this. And he would kind of help guide me and uh, make sure I, we went into a direction that he thought would be uh, a workable, delicious dish. And so a lot of my kind of creating desserts came from feedback from him and I relied a lot on you know I thought if Daniel Patterson says this dessert is good enough to go on the menu then I feel pretty good about it I don't care what the guest says the guest could hate it but he liked it and I liked it so it must be must be good
2: and I mean in 2017 the James Beard Foundation also liked it and Awarded you a, a semi, uh, semi-finalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef. But yeah. we're going to take a quick break and come back and talk about not only the desserts that you've created, but the ones that have been profiled in the wonderful magazine Toothache. You've been listening yeah. to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. <laughs>
0: Nourish and Flourish is a handcrafted ad-free integration of print and multimedia content from around the world with stunning photography and video. Explore emerging trends in nutrition, regenerative agriculture, and travel. Nourish and Flourish, thought-provoking content, and innovative links to videos allow you to view the future of food and healthy living. Join us on a journey of discovery from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site.
2: Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael harlan Turkell. here today with Nick Muncy, who's now the executive pastry chef of Michael Mina, a wonderful restaurant in San Francisco, Michelin, start at that. Um, But when you look at his website, there are a lot of abstract dessert names, not even abstract, singular, titular dessert names like rhubarb, apple brioche, almond cake, even mignardise. Uh, What do those mean to you? They're obviously more complex than... You know, that that marquee.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I think I always kind of... I name dishes kind of how I'm used to seeing them on menus. And a lot of my developing desserts were at so Those were very much just like the main ingredient being the title of the dish. And then two or three of the other ones. So it would never be like this long explanation of the dish. And so that's just kind of how now I name things, at least for myself, is you know, I try to go as simple with the the name and yeah, but sometimes I do turn out a little weird. Uh, like right now I have a, mel- a melon dish on and it's musk melon and then underneath it's uh, coconut blanc mange uh, and burnt fig leaf oil. And like, I feel like a lot of people don't order because of like what's musk melon, what's coconut blanc mange yeah. and what's burnt fig leaf oil. All these sound gross and not what I want to eat for dessert. But but you're guiding on an assumption that they know at
2: least one of those components.
1: Hopefully. <laughs> I
2: feel like you have that organizing principle with toothache, though, too. It's not, it's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, but we're hoping that it's for the masses soon enough. Uh, talk to me about why you ever concepted this magazine, um, why you decided to leave the kitchen, get behind the lens. I know you do a lot of the photography here. Yeah. Um, and wanted to you know, find a different creative outlet for yourself other than the pastry kitchen.
1: Yeah, so I had started taking photos uh, uh, just of my food, just for social media and all that. Um, and I had been in a magazine that I was a huge fan of called So Good. It's a Spanish pastry magazine. And they, at that time, they were, they just told me, like, yeah, we'd love to have you in the magazine, but you need to supply your own photography of your dishes and send us the recipes and answer these interview questions. So, <laughs> so I was, pretty so, much do the whole thing. Yeah, uh, so I was like, <laughs> what? Like... What's the work that they're doing in this? They just put it together. So when I was leaving Kwa, I had a little bit of money saved up, and I didn't really have a plan as to where I wanted to go next in a restaurant. And so I had had this idea of doing a magazine, and I guess I just got started on it, and I I had no idea until the first one was done just how much work was involved. And then it got to selling the magazine, and then that was a whole other mountain of work that I didn't expect to be involved But, uh, yeah, I started the magazine just to have a magazine that each chef could kind of share what they want and do what they want. And I wanted to keep it as open and as collaborative as possible. You know, in the future, if I could get, you know, a chef that has a hobby that's, you know, doing poetry or woodworking or is an avid sailor or something, being able to feature that along with their food and kind of bridge conversations between different topics... But uh a lot of times it just ends up being me in the kitchen with them hanging out, taking photos, talking shit, and you know, just seeing what the conversation kinda comes out of.
2: Yeah, I I found it so surprising and, and so nice because when I heard Toothache and Pastry Chef, I thought it was going to be this saccharinely sweet magazine about, like, Cremus and jocans. I know you do have those recipes in there, mm-hmm. but I have issues four and five in front of me. And in issue four, you open up, and the first thing's Jorge Vallejo of uh, Quinto Nil in Mexico City, and it's about him cycling and triathlons. Yeah. Why talk about that and leave the food kind of secondary?
1: That was what he wanted to talk about. Um, that That was literally it. I uh, I went down to Mexico City uh, for uh, a dinner that Californios was doing with them. And they gave me the chance to interview him while I was there. And I was like, what do you want to talk about? And he's like, well, I'm really into cycling. I was like, great, let's do it. And so I took some pictures of him riding his bike in front of the restaurant, which was, you know, a lot different than taking food photos. So that was a little uncomfortable. But um, yeah, just one of those random topics, and he's one of the, the few ones that have kind of gone way out of the box with uh, what he wants to talk about. I mean, I, I again, thought this was going to be
2: a Pastry forward magazine, and then the second piece was about Gulf Oysters with Julia Sullivan of Henrietta Red uh, in, in in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, then later on in the magazine, there is a part about fermenting things for desserts with uh, Caitlin Jarvis, but mm. it it was so nice to, you know, not be beat over the head by recipes
1: yeah it's uh you know i try to keep the magazine half and half savory pastry i try to consciously do half and half sometimes they bleed over into each other depending on the chef some chefs kind of do both or they want to feature themselves and the pastry chef so i'll kind of make it one piece sometimes or they'll go back to back but um yeah i try to keep it pretty split up and show a lot of different types of cooking, different people, different cuisines, different topics. Um, yeah.
2: Talk to me about somebody who I think blurs that line. It was Tavel bristol Joseph from Emmer and Ryan Austin because mm-hmm. that is a, a chocolate cake that has a lot of savory components to it.
1: Yeah, and he was, he was an amazing interview to have in the magazine, um, and he was also someone that I had never met and had just heard of right before meeting. And so um, he had some amazing, he had an amazing article. He had some fun recipes uh, using black garlic and ice cream. And, uh, you know, he's, he he did like a, just a, went above and beyond what I was expecting uh, for the magazine. And so I was super stoked to have him. And it's funny, like, you know, some chefs that I think are going to be the super, you know, they're the big name chefs that have, all the followers and all that kind of thing, I think they're going to be like the big interviews in the magazine. And sometimes they give me the crappiest stuff. And then sometimes that the people that I don't know that well that I'm kind of out of the blue meeting are some of the best people. So it's kind of interesting, you know, what people give you and how people open up to you.
2: Well, you also give guidance in a more general way term too in a general focus and that you are giving crash courses on things like canalays mm-hmm. um, examining lamination with uh, the baker from neighborhood bakery in san francisco w- why are you giving those you know very academic looks into uh, specific pastry features
1: so he uh greg wanted to do the, the lamination feature so uh that worked out great the canalay feature uh was something i did and i tried to I try to put a piece in that's kind of not attributed to anyone, that's just kind of the toothache feature, but it's really just me putting something together. So that one I got together with a couple other pastry chefs that are kind of known for their canalets, talked to them about, you know, the process and what they thought made a perfect canalet. And then I tested them at home and I probably baked, you know, 30 or 40 batches of different variations on the canalet recipe trying to find you know, what works, what doesn't work, what matters, what doesn't matter, because there's all these rules. And so for that, I thought that was a really fun one because there's, there's so much myth behind the canalays.
2: I mean, what was and, the finality? What was the answer? Wh- which is the method? Because I see <laughs> you, know, you did uh, six different mixing methods, two different uh, adding rums, four different flours, uh, you know, six different ways of resting the batter.
1: Yeah, I really found that most of the very vari- variables that a lot of people claimed were the answer didn't really matter. Um I thought, you know, there was a, a spec- there was one mixing method that was much harder and one that was easier to do and they both worked pretty well. Uh one was a little bit easier to me- the harder one was easier to mess up. And I don't know, I didn't I didn't find there to be like a clear-cut, this is the exact answer, because I got so many good results out of it that when I see people, when they, they're baking them and they're really messed up looking, I don't know exactly what they did like wrong. Cause. Yeah, because
2: it has a big latitude of decent, of, of pretty good. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about issue five. Is that your most current yes. issue right now? Yeah. Because um, what I, I, I kind of love about it is it feels very transitional at least for a couple of the interviews where you have Dave Barron, whose name has so long been associated with Alinea, and Thomas Frabel, who opened up uh, Inua in Tokyo, but is from Noma. Um, Mm. I thought they were both very interesting, because it was like having conversations with them for the first time. You know, you, you threw out everything you knew about them and just let them talk as if they were reinventing themselves.
1: Yeah, and I find that, you know, for some of those people, I really didn't know anything about them, so that That was kind of helpful uh for getting that kind of information out, but I try to be a little bit uh conscious of the fact that even if I'm best friends with somebody and I know all about them, the readers don't might not know all that stuff about them um so I try to get them to talk a little bit more about their background and some of the stuff that maybe some people already know but um yeah, and you know he was uh both of those chefs were were people I didn't really know their background about that much. Um, I knew their names. I knew their Instagram handles and that kind of thing. But I didn't know their careers that much.
2: So this is kind of a way for you not only uh, learn more about the people in your industry, but also learn more about yourself. I mean, what don't we know about you? What haven't you put forth, projected, put in your own magazine?
1: Um, Well, I try not to feature myself too much in it. This last issue, I did put myself in it. Right now, being back in the kitchen, it's been kind of a, an interesting kind of finding time for the magazine and working full-time in the restaurant. So uh, I actually put myself in there out of necessity. <laughs> um, so it felt a little weird to kind of have... Di- I mean, some of the dishes in Issue 5 I still have on the menu at the restaurant, uh, so that was a little weird. I usually don't do that.
2: I thought, I thought it was appropriate, though, that there were Minardies, that there were these interludes uh, in yeah. between things as you try to figure something out.
1: Yeah, and that was another, I mean, I could have attributed that one and be like, this is part of Nick Muncy's section, and I would have had, you know, this huge section in the magazine, but I don't want it to feel like it's me showing off myself. So the D section was a good way for me to fill pages last minute and, uh, you know, put out... Because, you know, some chefs don't want to always put out a lot of recipes. And I try to have a good amount of them in there just because some people buy them just for the recipes. So it's kind of finding this balance of good interviews, a lot of pictures, and having, a, you know, a decent amount of recipes. And kind of make it feel like, you know, it's not a cheap magazine at $20. So how do I give more value than people are expecting in the magazine?
2: I mean, you alone have given us saffron lollipops, tonka bean caramels, raspberry patta fruits, uh, black truffle, chocolate truffles, pistachio and fennel pollen, uh, nougats, macaroons, macarons. Yeah. Uh, so I, I feel like that's a lot of worth right there. But what, what are the recipes that have been the biggest takeaways for you personally as a chef?
1: Um, I think more so than recipes. Um, it's, it's hanging out with some of these chefs. Um, Like in one of the past issues, I hung out with Mike Sikowski, who's just like this master baker that just bakes by himself and sells at one farmer's market or one or two farmer's market. And he's just this amazing baker. And I spent probably like eight hours with him on an overnight bake taking photos. But I also got to just watch a person that's really amazing at what they do work. And when I left, I was more inspired to start baking bread, but unfortunately at that time I wasn't in a restaurant, so I was kind of like all amped up about bread. I was like, man, I want to get my hands in some dough and start playing around with it. And I didn't have an outlet. So at least now that I'm back in the restaurant, when I meet some chefs and I get really inspired by something that they do or um, something that they put up for me to taste, like I can at least go back and kind of play around with it and play around with my, my thought process and get it out of my system in a restaurant and instead of just thinking about it for a month.
2: And you, you do the bread program at Michael Mina at the moment.
1: Yeah, we do some flatbreads. Um, and, uh, yeah, and they're, they're actually breads that the, the past pastry chef, uh, Josh Gollin, put on. And I'm just kind of executing them still. But, um, yeah, they're amazing. And I, I haven't had the time yet to, to play around with new breads. So they're great as they are. So I'm just executing.
2: <laughs> well, what are the other things that you want to introduce, not only into toothache but into your own repertoire. Who are the people that you're hoping to profile next? Um,
1: well, f- for the next issue, uh, I'm here in New York, and I've kind of neglected the East Coast just because I usually don't have a lot of time and I don't have a lot of money to go out and do, you know, go to different cities and stay in hotels and, you know, do that whole thing. So this is kind of like my big trip for the next magazine. And then, um, yeah, so hopefully traveling more. That'd be great. Um, I'd love if I could find some sponsors at some point to help me travel some Wouldn't more. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to find someone to, to pay you to do what you want to do. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I I just want the magazine to kind of keep growing and feature more and more, you know, you know the big-name chefs that help sell the magazine, but also to kind of promote some people that you know, are lesser known, at, but are doing amazing things. Some of those up-and-coming chefs, some of the chefs that maybe don't have these crazy PR teams to kind of blast them out everywhere. Um, and that's kind of where I think it gets fun and interesting for the readers when they can kind of find chefs that they'd never heard of.
2: I know we can find you now at Michael Mina, but mm-hmm. where can people find issue six or even back issues of Toothache Magazine?
1: Yeah, so Magazine dot com is kind of the the best place to find the magazine uh, consistently because I'm the one that has them in the warehouse sending them out. But uh, we also have a page of uh, our stockists, so the different stores. We're in like 70 or 80 stores worldwide, a bunch in, most of those in the U.S. And then uh, we have subscription options, so you get all, them automatically sent to you kind of thing.
2: I feel like I always leave the most obvious question for last, but why the name Toothache?
1: So I was laying in bed trying to think of interesting names, and all the names I was thinking of already existed for something. And uh, Sweet Tooth kept popping in my head, and I was like, ah, this name's too stupid. Like, it's too, like... Because initially I was like, oh, maybe it'll be a pastry magazine only, like, just pastry. I was like, Sweet teeth? No, no, no. And then I, I think I was just, like, googling words and, like, finding synonyms and stuff, and toothache popped up when I put in Tooth. And I was like, that's perfect. So it kind of just popped in my head once, and it seemed like just... N- not food related enough to be fun and a good name um because I didn't want something right on the nose like I don't want to throw anybody else under the bus.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> this has so much depth and so much latitude. This is like a really good canelé. Uh, everyone should check out Tooth Ace Magazine. Check out Nick at Michael Mina. And thank you so much for being on the food scene. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan turkel hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to our sponsors, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Cheers.
3: the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020, at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations Services and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront, in a live format, featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobileni, J.J. Johnson, and Jeff Gournier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks.